Why don't I pray, and then we'll jump into what we're going to look at today. Um, Father, thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you that um, one of the things your word says uh, about itself is that it's like a lamp to our feet, Um, and Lord, that actually can show us the best way to live um, and the best paths to take in our lives. So we pray as we look at your word today that it would be that lamp for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been in a series sort of off and on called The Great Physician, and we've stolen the premise of uh, the series from an old G. Campbell Morgan book, uh, where each week we do this, we're looking at um, one of the ways that Jesus, like a great doctor, a great physician, interacted with and dealt with the people he came across. Uh, So we're looking at how he invested into the lives of certain people in the New Testament, like Peter, um, and John and the woman at the well. And, and what did he do to help them understand who he is? And what did he do to help them grow? What did he do to help them become uh, more like Christ? And so we'll be jumping in and out of this series over the next couple of years, probably. He interacted with a lot of people, so it's going to take us a while to get through it. Um, and every now and again, what we'll do is for three or four weeks, we'll look at uh, three or four of these interactions at a time. So that's what we're doing. Now, uh, there's an old Fiona Apple song called Extraordinary Machine, and yes, when I say old, I mean old. Uh, It was actually released in 2005, which means it's 17 years old. That's how old the song is. And I just want you to think about this for a minute. Um, When I was a nine-year-old kid in 1990, riding around in my stepdad's car, listening to the oldies station, and Let It Be by the Beatles comes on the radio, that song was released in 1970. That, That song was released in 1970, which means... In 1990, that song was only 20 years old, but it was on the oldie station. Now, let me really mess with your mind, okay? A song released in 1992, let's say I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston, or Jump by Criss Cross, or probably everyone's favorite from that year, Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-A-Lot. <laughs> are you ready for this? Those songs are now 30 years old. Which means today, those songs are older than an oldie was when I was nine years old riding around in the car with my stepdad. Okay, now that rant is over, let's get back to Fiona Apple and her 17-year-old song from 2005 because there's a little bit of wisdom in there. And in the song, she's singing about an opponent, someone she's up against in life. And the song kind of does this back and forth between describing like her way of living and the person who she's up against in life. And uh, she begins uh, early on in the song by saying this about herself. She says, but I'm no good at being uncomfortable, so I can't stop changing all the time. And then she sings about her opponent, but he's no good at being uncomfortable, so he can't stop staying exactly the same. Now, today in our series, we're going to meet Philip. And Philip, it turns out, is like Fiona Apple's opponent. Philip's no good at being uncomfortable, So it means he can't stop saying exactly the same. His life never changes. He doesn't progress in his life. And I wonder if that describes many of us in this room, that we're not very good at being uncomfortable. In fact, why even give yourself the option of being uncomfortable? Why not make comfort your number one aim in life? I mean, that's available to us, especially in a city like Los Angeles. Uh, And I guess this is where Fiona Apple's wisdom begins to ring true. Because if we get good at being uncomfortable, then what she says is we won't be able to stop changing all the time. But if we're no good at it, we can't stop staying exactly the same. In other words, no discomfort, no growth. Uh, Anyone who's ever gone on a diet or gone to the gym or learned an instrument 
uh, or a new hobby or a new sport or changed careers and had to like retrain for their new job understands this. You already know how this works. No discomfort, no growth. And this is exactly the kind of life that Jesus calls Philip to. He actually calls him to a life of discomfort. Uh, but that discomfort actually has a purpose to it. It's not just for the sake of being uncomfortable. It's actually meant to change and shape Philip for the better. Because here's what we're going to see. To grow as a Christian, to actually mature as a Christian, it actually requires that we get really good at being uncomfortable. Um, you know, if your life is oriented only around comfort, and if your Christian faith is only about comfort, you're probably not following the Jesus you read about in the New Testament. You might actually be following a Jesus of your own making. And so Philip's life actually becomes a challenge to us then to get good at being uncomfortable. And there's three major moments in Philip's life recorded for us. Actually, there's four, but we're only going to look at three. And here they are. Um, First, Jesus gives an uncomfortable calling. Second, he asks an uncomfortable question. And then third, he presents a comforting truth. So an uncomfortable calling, an uncomfortable question, and a comforting truth. So let's have a look at Jesus' method with Philip and see just how it is that discomfort is actually the key to growth as a person and especially as growth uh, growth as a Christian. So number one, Jesus gives an uncomfortable calling. And I, I mentioned last week, you might remember that when Jesus called his disciples, oftentimes he used a particular phrase. And actually, this is the first time he uses it right here in our text. He says the words to Philip, follow me. And the thing you need to know about Jesus at this point in his life is he's actually taking on the role of, a, of an ancient Jewish rabbi. And in that culture, in that world, to be a rabbi meant that you had disciples, you had people that you were teaching. A disciple is literally a student or a learner, but the best word might actually be apprentice. And the idea is that a rabbi would get a group of disciples, a group of apprentices, and they would show, he'd show them everything he knows. This is all I know from the Bible, this is how you live it out. So that one day those apprentices would also become rabbis and then they would get disciples and so on and so forth. Now Jesus actually describes the goal of this rabbi-disciple relationship in Luke chapter 6, have a look at it on the screen here. He says, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Everyone who's fully trained will become like them. And this is what this means. That for a rabbi to accept someone as a disciple, as an apprentice, it means the rabbi actually thinks they have what it takes to become one one day. That this, this disciple can actually be a rabbi. They're going to be able to do what the rabbi does. And for the most part in the ancient world, prospective disciples, they would go to the rabbi and they would apply. They'd say, hey, you're a really good rabbi. Could I be one of your disciples? Could I be apprentice, please? And uh, if uh, you were chosen, if the rabbi said, yes, okay, you can come and follow me, it was sort of like, it was a great honor. It's like getting into Stanford or Harvard or Yale or something. But did you notice in our text who it is that approaches who? Look at it again, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Did you catch that? Jesus is the one who goes to Philip. And sometimes you'll find that people come to Jesus, but other times Jesus comes to people. Uh, Emmy and I have these friends, a married couple um, back in the UK, and uh, they're, they're both from uh, Iran. And when they lived in Iran, they were um, sort of like political activists. And so they, there is a tyrannical government there, and they would sometimes go to protest in order to protest against this government that they wanted to bring down. 
And uh, one day they were at a protest and they both got arrested and they both got put in prison. So the husband went to the men's prison, the wife went to the women's prison. An interesting thing happened. Uh, both of them were put in cells, you know, probably six by six cells or whatever they are there. Um, both of them were put in a cell with a Christian. Um, and here's the interesting thing that happened is they're spending, you know, these weeks and months in the cell. They begin to look at the life of this Christian and say, wow, there's something different about this person. And then uh, the, the Christian starts to share with them why their life is different. They share with them why they have a hope while they're, while they're locked behind bars. And here's the amazing thing. So uh, both of them become Christians in a prison cell. And then they come out of prison about the same time, and they finally reunited as a couple. And the husband says to the wife, hey, I have something I need to tell you about what happened in prison. And the wife's like, well, I have something I need to tell you about what happened in prison. And they're both nervous about it. And so he's like, well, you go first. And she's like, no, 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 you go first. And they do this back and forth. And eventually one of them just blurts out, I became a Christian. And the other one said, me too. (laughs) Neither of them were looking for Jesus. Neither of them had any desire at all to find Jesus. But Jesus was looking for them. He went and found them. And that's the call, by the way, is the same. Whether you're looking for Jesus or Jesus looking for you, the call is still the same. It's still follow me. And this was a case for Philip. He was just going about his normal day. And then Jesus comes to him and he says, follow me. And ultimately, Jesus, by the way, he explains fully what he means by follow me over in Luke chapter 9. He actually says this about being a disciple, about being an apprentice of Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, should come on the screen. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. In other words, the method that Jesus uses with Philip and ultimately with every Christian, because he says, whoever wants to be my disciple... So every Christian, including you and me, the method he uses with them is first to say to them, follow me. And this is where it becomes uncomfortable. This is the uncomfortable calling. Because did you see the nature of what it means to follow Jesus? Did you see what it said there? Look again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. And so to be a disciple means first and foremost to deny yourself. And we saw this last week with Simon Peter, and here it shows up again with Philip. But to deny yourself is to become the kind of person who actually puts aside your own wants, your own desires, your own preferences, actually even sometimes your own rights. And that you would do that for the sake of others. In other words, it's to, to be a disciple, to follow Jesus, is to choose to be uncomfortable. Now, how does a person do this? How do you choose to be uncomfortable today and then choose it again tomorrow and then the next day and then the next day until the, the, the sort of theme and tone of your life is that? Well, first and foremost, it actually has to do with a reordering of your greatest loves. Uh, put it another way, a, a sort of shift in your wants, a shift in your desires and what's most important to you. Uh, there's a, a Christian philosopher named James K. Smith, and in his book, You Are What You Love, he actually talks about what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus. He says this, he says, discipleship, following Jesus, discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than knowing and believing. 
Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our lives and longings with his. To want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God, and crave a world where he is your all in all. And so in short, what he's getting at is saying, is that following Jesus, it's not an intellectual exercise. And yes, the mind is involved, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and all that's all there. But actually notice what Paul said in that verse, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so, yeah, the mind is involved, but being a follower of Jesus is as much a matter of reorienting your desires and longings and lining them up with his. So how does a person become good at being uncomfortable then? Well, as they follow Christ and become like Christ, there's a reordering then of what is most important or what is most wanted in your life. Um, this is a little bit crude, um, but I did go to MoMA last week and picked up some tips from some artists there. Um, and it's been a while since I've drawn something for you. Uh, and I know the artists in our church, you guys always take something away from this, you know, and it makes it on a canvas somewhere. Uh, so you're welcome. Um, here is a crude representation of what reordering your desires and longings looks like. Um, there we go. Isn't that beautiful? Um, I actually showed you something like this when we studied the book of Joshua. But each of these, so you see there's five levels there. Um, and each of these levels represent an important aspect of a person's life. And there's five levels there, but I suppose there could be a limitless number of levels and you could keep going. And, um, but as you work your way down, uh, whatever is at the very bottom in this illustration is the most important thing in your life. That, that's, that would be the most important. And again, you could swap these out. This is an imaginary person that I came up with. Um, but for this person, at the very bottom is their family, which seems reasonable. I think that's probably true for almost all of us in this room. Uh, and then moving up a level would be, you know, this person's case, their finances, and then their relationships, and then their work, and then their hobbies. Uh, and again, you could swap any of these out, move them around. But what I'm trying to represent here is a person's desires, their wants, the things that are most important in their life. And uh, here's what happens when a person... Um, you know, puts family at the bottom, well, then they think of their finances through that. They think of their relationships, their work, their hobbies through that lens. That's the most important thing to them. Now, here's what's happening uh, when a person becomes a Christian and actually begins to follow Jesus. Um, you go, go to the next slide there. What actually begins to happen is they begin to align their longings with the longings of Christ. And so here's what's happening. Uh, as, a, as a person begins to follow Jesus, Jesus becomes more important than their hobbies, so he moves down a level. And then eventually more important than their work, so he moves down a level below their work. And now they begin to think of their work and their hobbies through the lens of Jesus' desires and his longings. And then down through their relationships, their finances, their family, whatever the categories are. But eventually, after learning to be uncomfortable long enough, Jesus becomes the most central part, the most foundational part of a person's life. In other words, he makes it all the way down to the bottom foundation of their life, and then everything is built upon him. Jesus actually talks about this way of living like building a house on the rock, and that when we do that, the house can withstand any storm, no matter how severe. But the only way to do this, the only way to see Christ move to the bottom is to learn to be uncomfortable, to get good at it. And the truth is, if you live this way, your life will begin to look different than your neighbors or your colleagues or your friends. Uh, you will begin to, to think about and spend your money differently. 
You will begin to think differently about how uh, you use your home. You will begin to think differently about how you use your time. You'll begin to think differently about your relationships and who you might start one with or who you might end one with. And get this, you'll actually, you'll begin to think differently about your friends. You'll end up becoming friends with people who are very, very unlike you. And get this, you'll actually like them. You'll actually enjoy it. They will actually be your friends. And so if Jesus Christ is at the bottom, if he's the foundation, then many of your choices in life will actually look strange to the person who's not following Jesus. But the result is you will grow. In fact, Fiona Apple, in her wisdom, says you can't stop changing all the time. And this is where Jesus starts with Philip. He starts with an uncomfortable calling to follow me, to get good at being uncomfortable. Now, I'll just say this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe none of this sounds very appealing. You're like, oh, okay. So, so to be a Christian is to like choose an uncomfortable life. Um, that doesn't sound very appealing. Like why would a person choose discomfort over comfort, especially when comfort is very available to all of us in the United States? Well, stick with me because in the end, we'll see that Jesus actually deals with and takes away our greatest discomfort. Uh, But before we see that, the second thing Jesus does with Peter is he asks him an uncomfortable question. This is point two. And so to see this, you'll need to turn a couple of pages over probably to John chapter six. And in John chapter six, Jesus and his disciples, they're on the mountainside near the Sea of Galilee. And it's mealtime, probably lunchtime. And Jesus, being a very loving and hospitable person, wants to do the hospitable thing and feed all of his guests. Uh, He wants to feed the thousands of people who are coming out to meet him and to hear him. Uh, And I love this. So they're on the side of the mountain. They see the crowd coming. And Jesus turns to Philip. This is is the second time Philip shows up in the Bible. uh, And he asks him a question. So uh, John chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Uh, And again, this is... Um, Actually, this is the only time recorded in the Gospels where Jesus asked somebody for advice. He's Jesus. He didn't need advice. Um, But he asked Philip this question in order to teach him something. And in the end, or in the next verse, um, we actually see Jesus' method with Philip. Like, what's he doing? Look at verse 6. It says, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus already knew that he was going to do a miracle. He already knew he was going to feed these people by doing this impressive miracle. But here's what this verse shows us about Jesus' method with Philip. What is he doing with Philip? How does he help Philip understand who he is? How does he help Philip grow? Well, here's here's what this shows us, and ultimately about his method with each and every one of us. We are never done growing. Like, you never reach a sort of level of like, oh, I'm, I'm the top Christian. I've got all the badges on my sash. Like, you never reach that level. And keep in mind, by the way, that before uh, we read Philip's response, which is kind of comical, that at this point in John chapter 6, Philip has been with Jesus. He's been following him for at least a year, maybe more. So not like the next day. Like, it's not like he said, follow me, and then the next day they're on the mountainside. It's been at least a year, maybe more. And so here's the thing. Philip actually saw Jesus turn water into wine. And now here he is on the side of a mountain with thousands coming around them. And Jesus says, hey, Philip, where do you think we can pick up some bread around here? And here's the response, verse 7. 
Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Philip, he like rejects the premise of the question. He answers a different question. Uh, And this shows us something about Philip. It shows us that despite being around Jesus day after day for more than a year, seeing him do miracles and healing the sick and forgiving sins, and despite him being around that incredible ministry, Philip still has some growing to do. And maybe that describes you. Maybe actually Philip seems sort of like a, a neophyte to you because... You know, maybe you've been following Jesus not just year after year, but year after year after year after year. Five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Maybe you've been following Jesus longer than Sir Mix-a-Lot's music has been flying through the airwaves to our car stereos. Maybe that's how long. But notice this about Jesus' method with Philip. Jesus points out that Philip still has some growing to do. And if that's true of Philip, then it's definitely true of you and me. Because Philip saw it. He was there. Now, in this instance, Philip, you know, he's, he's got the theological knowledge of where the bread can come from. Like I said, he saw Jesus turn water into wine. He saw him make a lame man walk. He saw him cast out demons. He even saw him raise a girl from the dead. And so Philip knows theologically. In other words, he knows intellectually that Jesus can manifest bread from anywhere But he doesn't apply that knowledge. He doesn't act on it. I mean, wouldn't it be great if if Jesus said to him, hey, Philip, do you know where we could get some bread? And Philip's like, well, yeah, you're the guy that turns water into wine, so why don't you just take care of that for us? But instead, he's like, well, we don't have enough money, even if there was a place. And of course, Jesus goes on to then do a miracle and feed the entire crowd with just five loaves of bread and two fish. And it says there were even leftovers. Now, what's the point of all of this? Why does Jesus ask Philip this uncomfortable question? Well, it seems to be that Jesus wants to see if Philip has learned to apply his theology. To take his theological knowledge and actually then live it out. In other words, can you actually live out what you believe? That's the uncomfortable question. Can you live out what you believe? Uh, The question, it's actually the, the very center of what Christian maturity is. And I think... What Jesus wants Philip to grasp here is that Christian growth, it's not just intellectual growth. The marker of Christian maturity, it's, it's, it's an embodied truth that you actually act on what you say you believe, what you know you believe. Now, here's what I'm beginning to find in my own life, and I think I'm beginning to hear it a lot in the lives of people I'm talking with in a place like Los Angeles, is that we all know some theological truth, Uh, Many of us know a lot of theological truth. We've got our understanding of the love of God and of the mercy of God or of the provision of God or of the kindness of God. And we like knowing those things. We like knowing that that truth about God is there, but we, we sort of only have it in storage somewhere. It's not out in the living room. It's in the closet or the attic or the basement. And so we really like knowing that the truth is there, just like, you know, our favorite things that we've stored away. We like knowing that they're there. It's a comfort to us even. But we don't really let it out. We don't take that out of the box and actually let it loose in our lives. And so we like to know that God is our provider. But then we don't let him provide. 
We like knowing that God is wise, but we don't let his wisdom into our lives as we make our decisions. We like knowing that God cares about people who don't know him, but we don't take part in his mission to share that news with those in our lives. Uh, for three years, I mean, I lived in this um, kind of nice high-rise apartment in the center of Liverpool, England, and it was a two-story apartment. And so there was like a, a, a void or an opening between where our kitchen was upstairs and the living room downstairs. Um, here's a picture. This doesn't even come close to doing it justice, but I don't actually have any good pictures of this. But that's looking down from our kitchen into our living room. Um, and um, so we had this, uh, very conveniently, by the way, you could just drop food down from the kitchen. Um, and uh, every now and again, like a, like a piece of candy, you could like drop it in the mouth of the person down there. Drinks were a bad idea, I'll just tell you. They were not a good idea. But there was also, uh, it's hard to explain, but this little ledge in front of the window. Um, so like on the one side where the big vaulted ceiling was, there was a window there and a window there. And there was like a ledge in between the two windows, a shelf almost, if you will. Um, and uh, it's hard to explain, but here's a, a picture. Um, oh, you can't even see that, can you? Anyway, when we moved there, I needed a place to store my bicycle. Uh, we didn't have much storage, a tiny hall closet upstairs that was mostly taken up by the water heater and a closet down under the stairs that was taken up by the dryer. And so where was I gonna put my bike? I know, I'll put it on that little shelf that we, no one can walk on and we can't use. And so it actually sat there for the entirety of the three years that we lived there. Um, and people would come over and they'd say, hey, cool bike, uh, how much do you get out to ride it? And I would say, oh, well, Pretty much never. And I realized eventually that I, I kind of liked having it there. I liked knowing that I'm a cyclist, or at least remembering that at one point in my life I was a cyclist. I even liked others knowing that I was a cyclist. But I actually had no plans to pull the bike off the shelf and put it on the ground and ride it. No plans at all. And I think you can see where I'm going with this. It's a metaphor for so many of these theological truths that we have tucked away all comfy in our heads. That we're actually comforted knowing that they're there. We even feel good about the fact that they are there. That we know them. But the uncomfortable thing is to take them down off the shelf and ride them. And the reason Jesus asked this uncomfortable question then to Philip is to, to nudge him. To go ahead and to try and live out the theological truth that he already knows. That Philip might actually say, hey, I know you're the one who turns water into wine, so why don't you turn this loaf of bread into more? In other words, to apply the truth that we already know, that is maturity. That's to grow in maturity. But the only way that happens is through discomfort. It requires being uncomfortable. And so just think about it. Which, what, what's the one for you right now? Like, what's the one truth about Jesus or about God or about Christianity that you just, you have it stored away? You love that it's there, you know it. But what's that one that you, you need to pull down off the shelf and let that truth loose in your life? And do you think God would come through? He certainly did for Philip. He turned a few small loaves of bread into a meal for thousands. And I wonder what he would do if you took one of those truths off and just let it loose in your life. And we've seen so far Jesus' method with Philip is to give him an uncomfortable calling and to ask him an uncomfortable question. And now thirdly, Jesus actually presents a very comforting truth. 
Uh, the final time that Philip shows up in the New Testament is when he's in the upper room with Jesus just before Jesus is arrested. And while they're in there, Jesus says the famous line, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm the way to God. I'm, I'm the only way to God. There's no other way to God except through me. And so Philip hears this, and his response, uh, John chapter 14, verse 8, should be on the screen for you. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. So Jesus just said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And Philip's like, mm, you're not quite enough. Why don't you just go ahead and show us the Father? In other words, show us God. If, if you're the way, then, then show us what's on the other end of that way. And here's the comforting truth that Jesus presents to Philip in John chapter 14. It's in verse 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, three years at this point, here's the comforting truth. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I am God. I am God in the flesh. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. And this is what qualifies him to give that uncomfortable call to follow me. This is what qualifies him to ask the uncomfortable question. That anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And what does it mean to see Jesus? What does it mean to see Jesus? Because if we've seen him, then we've seen God. Well, okay, this series is called The Great Physician. So let's try and put it in that category. What does it mean to see your doctor? What does it actually mean to see your doctor? Well, it's, it's actually to take the truth, to take the knowledge, the wisdom from your doctor and apply it. You have this ailment, take this medicine, and then you'll be like this, right? That's, that's what it is to see the doctor. Uh, a few years ago, I needed to go to a specialist for um, uh, the problem I have with sleep apnea, uh, but to see the professional or the, the specialist, I had to go to the normal doctor, and then they had to refer me to the specialist doctor. And so I go and see the normal doctor, and they do the thing that they always do, where they're like, oh, okay, well, before we talk, let's go ahead and do your height and weight. And so they have me go over um, and they check my height and then have me stand on a scale and they check my scale. And the doctor is doing this and it's kind of a big doctor's office. And so as we're walking back across the room, he does a calculation in his head. Uh, because if you divide the numbers rightly, then you know whether or not someone is overweight. And uh, as we're walking back to sit down at his desk, he says, so as you know, uh, being an obese person, uh, means that, you know, it's going to have some impact on your sleep apnea. And I was like, wait, hold on a minute. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Great bedside manner, this doctor. <laughs> and the truth is, do you know what? I actually didn't see that doctor that day. Because I didn't take his advice. I didn't do anything about it. I didn't take his wisdom and apply it. But to see Jesus, to see him as he really is, is actually to trust him more than you trust your doctor, because he's not just a doctor. He's not someone who just understands us physiologically, but, but to trust him because he's the creator, because he put you all together. And then to take what he says about you and take what he says about your life and actually apply it. That's what it is to see him. And do you remember what Jesus said about him being a doctor? When we started this series a few months back, 
Uh, We saw this in Matthew chapter 9. And here's what Jesus said about being a doctor. Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And here's the comforting truth. Jesus Christ came as the great physician to bring mercy. Knowing us as we are, knowing all of our ailments, all that's wrong with us, Jesus comes as the great physician to bring mercy. Mercy for all the things in your life that, let's be honest, you are uncomfortable about. All the things in your life that if people knew them, you would squirm under the weight of discomfort. The things that you think about that no one knows. The things that you do that no one knows. The things that you've said that you wish you could have back. The comforting truth about Jesus is that he came to bring mercy for all of those things. And mercy means not giving us what we deserve. And what we deserve for all of those things that we've thought, all of those things that we've said, all those things that we've done that would just bring us discomfort if someone found out about what we deserve for those things is judgment. And you know that's true because that's, that's why you feel uncomfortable about them. But Jesus Christ came to bring mercy. Jesus Christ, the one who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came to bring mercy. And how does he do that? Well, he does it at the cross. Instead of giving us what we deserve, God the Father gives that to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ bears the immensely discomforting weight of our sin as he dies on the cross so that we would receive the comfort of having our sins forgiven and our slates wiped clean. And this is the Christian gospel. This is, this is the comforting truth. That if you take this truth off the shelf and bring it into your life, then you'll receive a comfort that outweighs any discomfort from following Christ. And it'll actually remove the discomfort that you have of the shame and of the things that you're carrying around. And by the way, if you get the order right, that Jesus died for you and then you want to live for him, it will actually become your motivation for choosing to be uncomfortable. And so how does a person choose discomfort for the sake of others? Well, it's because you know that Jesus Christ chose discomfort for you. And so choosing to be uncomfortable for the sake of another person, that is actually the act of taking the theological knowledge off the shelf that Jesus died for you to serve you. So every time you serve another person, every time you deny yourself, every time you give yourself up, your rights, your wants, your desires, your longings for the sake of another person, what you're doing is you're taking that theological truth about Jesus Christ off the shelf and putting it into practice. You see how that works? So this is Jesus' method with Philip, and it's not unlike his method with each one of us. He gives an uncomfortable calling. He asks an uncomfortable question, but more than that, better than that, he presents a comforting truth that is the fuel, the motivation for the uncomfortable calling. And so let me just leave you with this as we close. If you're a Christian, the way to Christian maturity is not just knowledge about Christ. 
Christian maturity is the character that results from applying, from living out that knowledge in your life, from taking it off the shelf and actually acting on it. But doing that is uncomfortable. But if you can get good at being uncomfortable, then you can't stop changing all the time. And imagine if our church was full of uncomfortable people always serving one another, always denying themselves for the sake of another person, always serving our city, always changing, always growing. And wouldn't it be great to be a church like that? I think it would. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this comforting truth that Jesus Christ came to bring mercy. And we pray you'd comfort us with that truth. We pray that that would actually give us the fuel that we need to be uncomfortable, to serve others, to love others, to deny ourselves. And that every time we do that, we would get a sense and an understanding that when we do that, we're being just like Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.